Father, this is all we've got. This very hour. I don't, Lord, I don't even have enough strength to make it through a message. There's no way, Lord, I can make it through a week. And that's not my business, that's yours. So I thank you that for the next 30 minutes, you'll be enough for me and for them. And then, Lord, when we all leave this place, you'll be enough for this afternoon. You'll be enough to get us through the night and to whatever we face tomorrow at job and family, our bodies. Lord, for this community, Lord, for the state and for the nation, you'll be enough. Lord, even for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have anything beyond today's food, I thank you that you are enough, and when it's time for them to die, you'll be enough to carry them into glory. So we thank you, God, that you've always been enough. And so I pray, God, that right now people would dismiss all of the fears and the worries, anxieties from their heart and their mind and delight in your enoughness for this very moment. Right now, all that we need, you're providing because of your grace, your love, because of Christ, your forgiveness, because you've already got the future. Lord, let us just enjoy hearing from you today because you are enough. It is in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you are a Christian, then one or two things is always true in your life. Either Jesus is with you, or you are with Jesus. If Jesus is with you, then you're living on earth and serving him now. And if you are with Jesus, then you are no longer on earth, but you are serving him in heaven. And what would be your preference? The Apostle Paul said there were two choices. He would choose the latter. 2 Corinthians 5, as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Jesus is really not, he's, he's with you, but you're not with him. We would prefer to be away from the body because we want to be with Jesus at home with the Lord. No one enjoyed serving the Lord more than the Apostle Paul. He blessed him and strengthened him for 30 plus years of ministry. Jesus had been with him every step of the way, but, the, but Paul looked forward more than anything to being with Jesus in heaven. Really, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we were there for several weeks, and the first eight verses of that chapter tell us this, because God is planning for us to be at home with Jesus, we can endure anything now on earth. That was the purpose of the first eight chapters of 2 Corinthians 5. And because we are going to be with him one day, then our goal is to please him whether we're here or whether we're there, but to please him always. This is leading into our next part of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body, here, or away from the body, there. Our singular focus in life is serving Jesus Christ. And then just so that you might have an extra special motivation to live your life pleasing the Lord with your body, he provides this rather strong motivation. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. When I was preparing this message this week, I really thought about presenting that verse and walking off stage. It's that sobering. You're going to give an account. But I thought I shouldn't do that because there could be some real theological misunderstanding that could cause you to end up in a place of hopelessness, and I didn't want to do that. Matter of fact, I want to really make this statement, and then I want to show you why I support it. If you have truly come to Christ brokenhearted over your countless rejections of God, if God has produced in your heart's true sorrow and repentance over those sins, if he has given you faith that Christ shed his blood to erase those sins, then God is not going to bring those sins back up to you when you die. So that's what the verse doesn't mean. You got to pay for everything that's already been paid for. That's not wishful thinking on my part. That's a promise of God. We're going to get there in a minute, but I want to go ahead and get there fast so you can know what verse 10 doesn't mean. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Yes. So if you've ever come in this room and heard us use the word gospel, good news, that's the good news. Through Christ, God does not count your sins against you. I have no better news for you than that, ever. So having that confidence, now we can look back at verse 10. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean something. Paul wouldn't have written it had it not meant something. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we're not going to be judged for sins that are past and confessed. What are we going to be judged for? Well, the rest of the chapter makes it very clear. We're going to be judged how we used our body for the advance of the cause of Christ around the world. What did you do with the singular one body you were given to serve the Lord? Now, Paul will say that later. We'll get there later. But he sort of summarizes, we are Christ ambassadors now, as though God were making his appeal to us or through us. That's, what's gonna, that's, that's life. That's what you're going to be judged on, whether or not you were a good ambassador representing Christ in this world by how you represented his Mission. So that's really what 2 Corinthians 4 and chapter 5 are all about. Paul is saying, in being a good ambassador, my body's been beat up. In fact, my body is about to be executed. It's okay because Jesus is giving me a new body in heaven. Therefore, the only thing I need to be concerned about is what did I do with my body on earth for Christ? And that's what brings us back to verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive how we used our body. What you do with your body 
has eternal consequences. God is seriously interested in what you do with your body. Whether it brought honor to Christ or dishonor to Christ, every single thing you do with your body should be for the purpose of pleasing and serving Christ. And you will give an account of whether you were immersed in that calling or indifferent to it. The 21st century is filled not just with church members who are indifferent to this calling, but church members who are actually participating in the godless lifestyle of the culture that needs Jesus. People, many of them in church every Sunday, live as if there were no God and no judgment. They replaced a holy God with a permissive God who winks at their sin. And yet Paul says to each one of them, you will give an account for whether or not your body was used to point people to the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Paul says, there's no way I could be indifferent to that calling. Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Because we fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What's he mean by that? Because I have an appointment with God, I know I have an appointment with God, of how I used my body, mind, mouth. Because of how I use this vessel, the only thing I have to serve him is this. Because I have an appointment with God of how I use this to magnify Christ, it causes me to tremble. It is an appointment I will not miss. And he says... I'm going to, I tremble because I'm trying to use my body to persuade others. You know what makes it hard to persuade others to come to Christ? They don't want to come to Christ. This is the challenge. This is why Paul's body got beat up and eventually executed. He's trying to use his one body to persuade people who don't want to be persuaded to leave their sin and to come to Jesus. And the people in the Corinthian church that we'll see had lost confidence in him, thinking that because of the beatings he was taking, something was going wrong and he was over persuading. So simmer down, Paul. That's just what the whole rest of the chapter is about their loss of confidence in his boldness to preach. Christ, right now, this church has a partner in India. This is the third week he is sitting in prison, government mounting a huge case against him. He's a preacher of the gospel, the charge disturbing the peace, in prison for trying to persuade people to come to Christ. This is exactly what was happening in the life of Paul and the Corinthian church was saying, back off, dude. It can't be right if the persuasion leads to persecution. Paul says, are you kidding me? I am filled with a reverential awe, a fear, a trembling, because I have to give an account of whether or not I use my body, my one chance on earth, to persuade people to come to Christ. They'll be separated forever from God if I don't do that. So I tremble for them because of their lostness, but I also tremble 
with hope because of what Jesus Christ can do to transform them. The hopelessness of society and the hopefulness of Jesus is filled Paul with a reverential awe. Let me say one more thing about the, the fear of the Lord. It's clear there. It's, he says, I know what it is to fear the Lord. Whatever you marvel at the most will control you the most. The greatest passions of your heart will be the greatest passion of your body. The greatest passions of your heart will dictate what you do with your time and your money. Whatever you, whatever you fear the most, revere the most, let me say this again because I distracted you. Whatever you fear the most, revere the most, respect the most, you will serve the most. Say that again. Whatever you fear the most, revere the most, respect the most, you will serve the most. For Paul, the thing that he respected most was standing before the Lord, giving account of his witness for Christ. That's what caused him the deepest trembling. I had the privilege this week of visiting once again with Jeremy Vognes. He is the brother of our student pastor, Dan Vognes. Both of them were involved in a horrible um, automobile accident 11 years ago in Montana. The car rolled over a number of times, and the force was so great that it, it shredded the connections in Jeremy's brain or the rest of the body. didn't break his spinal cord, so it's just that he's got a fully functioning brain that's unable to communicate with the rest of his body. Speech is gone. Motor functions are gone. Most are. Cannot feed himself or breathe, breathe, uh, bathe himself, but he is able to spell out with moving a little bit of his left leg and slightly his left arm, he can spell out using a computer the thoughts in his brain using an alphabet keyboard on his computer. One other thing that his left leg can do is to paint. So if you attach a paintbrush to his left foot and put a canvas up to it and put some paint on the end of the brush, he's able to move it up and down and you sort of, sort of a coordinated dance, you moving with it, and eventually you can produce a painting. So we worked this week at producing this painting. That's what it looks like. A lot of beautiful colors against the backdrop of a black canvas. And when we finished, Jeremy motioned to Dan well, I want my computer. And then he typed out on the computer with his motions of his elbow. I want to name the painting, Run With Perseverance. Which I thought was an interesting title from a young man who was 11 years ago, an all-American collegiate runner in college. So he can't use his body for much of anything anymore. But he can move his leg with an attached paintbrush to paint a picture to remind believers, don't quit persuading people to come to Christ. So what I want to ask you today is, what are you doing with your body for Jesus? 
Are you producing beauty out of your body? Or are you producing God-dishonoring behavior? So Paul says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Like we're going to give an account of what we produced out of our body. We try to persuade others. And then for the next three verses, he explains to the church, the church had lost confidence in him, why he uses, or that they they should trust him. He's using every fiber of his mind and his body and his tongue, his energy, his money, to try to fulfill the mission of Christ. So you can start to see the doubt coming in from the church. Verse 11, what we are is plain to God, and I hope... (laughs) It's plain to you because it's not plain to them. That's why he says, I hope. He, this word plain is a, a Greek word which means to shine a light, to make something visible. He said, when God shines his light on my ministry, it is pure. I'm about Jesus being made known. But when you shine your light on my ministry, you are filled with doubt. So, question is, what has taken away their confidence? Well, told you before, part of reading the Bible is just getting used to the Bible. You read it enough, and then you start to be able to piece things together. It's not hard, but you got to trust me right now, not enough time. False teachers had come into the community. False teachers wanted to pull people away from the Corinthian church into their fellowship. Why in the world would they want to do that? Money. It's always the case for most things in life. Money is normally behind it all. So false teachers wanting to accumulate money, steal church members away, and the only way they could do that is to convince the Corinthian church, your leader, Paul, is wacko. It's exactly what he said. Verse 12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what they allegedly see rather than what is in the heart. So people are looking at the wrong thing. You look in my heart, you'll see pure motive. You listen to the false teachers, you're going to see what they want you to see. Then he says, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Those would be worthy of your study later on this week. But I want you to know why this matters, why he's trying to, he's not looking for, he's not wanting compliments it's not what true preachers, they want, they want compliments. They want confidence. They want confidence in this ministry. They want you to be confident in this ministry. They want you to be so confident that you'll bring people here. They don't want you to be embarrassed. They don't want you to doubt that, oh, if I bring somebody here, the message is so intense, it will be embarrassing So Paul says, I want you to be confident that the ministry is about exalting Christ. And just think about what we compete with 
in this day and age when especially newer churches, larger churches, booming churches have to alter the message and whittle it down and maybe water it down and not really talk about the, the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty of God, the horror of sin, but they have to say all sorts of other things, lesser things, maybe even untrue things, to draw a crowd. This is what we're competing against. Paul says, I want you to be confident. This is where truth will be, will be preached. Paul was so intense about preaching Christ, they said he was crazy. And I just want to tell you, if somebody ever tells you you're crazy for the Lord, that you're in good company. Because in Mark 3.21, this is exactly what the family, even the very family of Jesus Christ said about him before they knew he was. He is, has lost his mind. I cannot stress to you how much a growing sentiment in our culture is, I'll just call it the, the church is, has lost their mind culture. As never before, it's a growing, big growing movement in our culture. Culture is screaming louder than ever that the theology and the ethics of the New Testament church is crazy. You have lost your mind. You must be silenced. Your values are crazy. You must be stopped. And what makes this even more challenging is that church members and even church leaders are starting to buy into and listen to the culture around us and are so desiring to please culture, they are, they are softening the message of the New Testament in order to win the approval of the culture. The culture that says, be quiet. The culture that says, be silent. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We can never be quiet and please the Lord. What Paul makes clear to the Corinthian church is the ultimate reality of what actually drives him is that he has discovered what true love is, and that's what he wants to tell the world. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Paul says, if you want to know what's driven me crazy in life, it's the love of Jesus for the world. Paul said, I, I act like I do because I am, I am, there's another force controlling me that's greater than me, and it's the love of Christ. The love that Christ has for the world. It's the greatest love story of all times. That one man died 21 centuries ago in the Middle East, and that one death can bring forgiveness to all. Wow. Think about this. I mean, this is like you know about people who died and have saved people's lives. A, a, a police officer might die and, 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 and prevent someone else from from dying. A, a fireman might rush into a house and prevent a family from dying. A, uh, a soldier might die and prevent his entire platoon from dying, but these deaths are very restricted. People die then only for a small group of people and only for a small brief point of time. Jesus Christ died in Jerusalem 21 centuries ago, to, and everybody, anybody in this room today can be forgiven of their sin because of one death. 
He says, I'm crazy about that message. Now, when he says that one died for all, it doesn't mean that all are going to be saved because many reject, many will not be persuaded. But he is saying, if everybody in the world at one time rushed the throne of God and said, forgive me, there's enough grace for all. So then the next verse, Paul again clarifies why he lives the way he does. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, for their protection, for their admiration by the world, but should live for him who died for them and was raised again. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm not devoted to the memory of a fallen hero. I am not making sacrifices in my life because of one who died and made a sacrifice. He said, I am motivated because that man who made that sacrifice rose from the dead. End of verse 15. I'm motivated by a risen Christ. And the difference between true Christianity and its popular counterfeit in the church involves a a relationship with a living person. Paul says, I'm bound to a living person. That's why I'm crazy. Authentic believers are controlled by a resurrected Christ. Nominal church members are committed to stories about Christ. It's a whole different group of people. Look how the reality of following a crucified and resurrected Christ changed everything for Paul. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once did. We even regarded Christ like that. Don't do it any longer. What do you mean by that? Well, there was a time when Paul looked at the, everything through a worldly lens and he saw Jesus Christ making massive claims that he was the Messiah and the Savior. And then he looked at the life of Christ, poor, came from a no-reputation family, died naked on a cross at the command of the Roman government, betrayed by the nation that he came to save. And Paul looked at that Jesus as a loser. From a worldly point of view, he said Jesus is a loser. But then, on a business trip to Damascus, he saw the cosmic Christ resurrected, ascended to heaven, Shining so light, knocked him off his horse on the ground, heard the voice of the eternal king speaking to him. And that's why he said, I no longer regard Christ in a worldly way. (laughs) Because I've seen the cosmic Christ, resurrected Christ. And he said, that's why I don't regard Christians in a worldly way. They're not losers. How can anybody be a loser who's connected eternally to a cosmic Christ? And so he's pleading with the the Corinthians, "Don't, don't view me as a loser. Don't view me through a worldly lens. I'm preaching a cosmic Christ, and I want you to join in that message with me. So then he wants us to know that God (laughs) 
This is what happens when you're connected to a cosmic Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. How can anybody be a loser that's attached to a cosmic Christ? How are you new today? Everything about you is new. You're joined to Christ. You live in the sphere of his love. It touches you. You're touched by Christ's love today. It empowers you. You're part of a new situation. One time, maybe a year or two, five years, ten years ago, you were hopeless. You were bound. You were boarded on a ship that was headed toward eternal destruction. And now you're headed on a ship that's headed to the safe harbor of heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And you're going to enjoy that with a new body. Everything about you is new. And everything about you that you did in the past is gone. And God so wants this for you, he made sure the plan was going to come about because he is the one who put it in place. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know, when Paul says all of this is from God, do you know what he wants you to get from that? None of this is from you. He's not going to leave this plan up to us, this church, like you one day deciding on whether or not you're going to. No, he initiated the plan. He came after you. All of this is from God. God made the way for men to be reconciled to God. The word reconciled is a little bit different take on all of these big giant words in the Bible, reconciliation, justification, propitiation. Most of the time when you look at the big giant words in the Bible, they're all under the category of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? So I could tell you, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be reconciled to God. This is a little bit different take than our other word that we often hear Paul when he says you're justified by God. If you're justified by God, it's like you went into a courtroom and God wrote not guilty across the books of your crime. So when a judge were to, if you were a judge were to acquit somebody, justify them, go on your way, case dismissed. Not a bad thing, but you're never going to see that judge again. You're not friends. Get out of my court. Case closed. Not guilty. You're just gone. Reconciliation is a term of intimacy and friendship. It means that whatever was between you and the party that you offended is gone so that there was once enmity, now there's friendship. So taking the judge metaphor, when he declares you not guilty, justified, reconciled means now the judge invites you over to dinner. Paul says everybody who loves Christ and believes the cross is not just cleared of their sins, but has been invited over to God's house, to God's table, to dine with Him forever. And that's the message He's entrusted to us to take to the world. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. Now it's our task to go tell the world this has happened just like I'm doing to you today. You do it to those that you're around and to those that we meet through missions. What's our message? Just once again, just in case we missed it. Here's the message we take out. What a privilege to say this to people. 19, verse 19. God was reconciling the world himself. There it is. Middle of verse 19. Not counting people's sins against them. That's what we get to tell the world. David Garland puts it this way. The files containing the records of our offenses have been deleted. And Paul says again, if you think I'm crazy, I'm crazy about that message, yes. If you think Jesus was crazy for dying on a cross, then I am guilty of being crazy about telling people he died on a cross so that God could not count people's sins against them. Now, just in case the Corinthian church or you hope point is still not understood, uh, still not understood that his call is your call, he says it one more time, one more way. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. I see Chris in the service today. He's had the privilege of serving as a chaplain to one of our ambassadors in the in Washington, D.C. for many years. So he knows full well what ambassadors do. Just in case you don't know what ambassadors do, they represent the king. It's all they do. They're not responsible for contriving their own message. They're sent out with a message. It's what ambassadors do. They are sent out to go meet with somebody in another land, another place, another sphere. And most of the time it is to extend goodwill. And to say, if there's going to be goodwill between the person that I report to and you, here are the terms the ambassador doesn't make the terms. He just announces the terms given to him by the king. So we want the world to have peace with God. And so we tell the world, these are the terms. That is our, our mission. This is explains why Paul acted as he did. The Corinthians thought he was crazy. He said, I'm not crazy. I'm just obedient to my king. But I'm going to tell you, the Corinthians were not fully there yet. They were not fully bought into Paul. They had so much sin in their life, they could easily lose confidence in Paul. And that's why he concludes this passage with this plea. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why do you tell that to a church? <laughs> He's writing to a church. You would think these people are reconciled to God. Not fully. Junk in their life that was causing them to doubt him causing them to buy into the culture, to believe that he was overboard, persuading too hard. And it was, it was their lack of reconciliation to God that caused their lack of reconciliation with Paul. That is, they could not invite people and say, listen to this message we sing about and preach about. They couldn't do that because their lives lacked reconciliation in many areas. 
and it produced it produced cowardice and it produced a lack of confidence so paul gives them one more reason he's begging them here please give your whole life to god no more halfway stuff here he says one more motivation be reconciled to god because of this god made christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned, went to a cross, and on the cross said to God the Father, I will take responsibility for all of Richard's sin. Whatever is due Richard... I will take responsibility. And then he went to every person in this room and said, I will take responsibility for your sin and your sin and your sin. On the cross, and Christ said, I will take responsibility. I will, I will own their guilt. And as soon as he said that, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for your sin. And then all of your guilt was transferred out of your body Onto, onto Christ, and in this giant void where all of this sin had been, look what verse 21 says, and that void was filled with the very righteousness of Jesus himself. So I do agree with Paul. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we love our reconciled state with you. We cherish that. We want to say thank you. You have not just deleted the files, not just closed the law books, not just declared us no longer guilty, not just paid for our offenses, not just took ownership of our crimes, but you reconciling God have invited us to your table, invited us to your home, invited us to your kingdom, invited us to your palace. God, how could we even think that we would want to do anything with our lives but be good ambassadors. Telling the message of the king to the world of how they can have peace with God. Telling about the one death 21 centuries ago which enables God to not count men's and women's sins against them. God, forgive us for anything in our life that's not fully reconciled to you that we're holding back. Forgive us of that. You're worthy of more. And then, Lord, forgive us for not willing to be out of our mind, for being not willing to be radical in our ambassadorship. God, we should be telling everyone everywhere, all the time, 
about Christ. His love that touches people, forgives people, rebuilds them, renews them, suffers for them, rises for them, lives in them. Oh God, let us leave this room not ashamed, not being silenced by the culture, but to have a message of hope, bold, unwavering hope for our dying culture that they can live again through Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.